So it's a pleasure to welcome to our series today's special guest, Mr. Robert Milner, Chairman of Washington H. Soul Pattinson. Rob, thanks so much for your time and, and for the opportunity to be speaking with you today. I thought we'd start at the start. You were born in Sydney in, in 1950. Before we get into your career and, and the business, tell us a little bit, if you could, about your history and, and your background. I had a great early childhood. As I said, we were born at uh, Beecroft. My grandparents lived across the road from where, where I was born and my two uncles um, weren't far away. So we were always very family orientated. And my grandparents on my father's side were wonderful people. Um, May Pattinson, who's old Louis Pattinson's daughter, she married a guy called Tom Milner, who actually went to Gallipoli and got injured in Gallipoli and went to France, evacuated him to France. And the thing that always amazed me in 1915, 1916, these wealthy young women who went over with the Red Cross and that's how, how they met in a hospital in France. So, um, and then they met up after the war and he, he became a very successful man in his own right. And, and my grandmother was a wonderful lady. And Australia in the 1950s when you were growing up, what was that like and what were some of the formative experiences that you can recall? Well, we lived in Sydney till I was eight. And then for some reason, the, the Milner family got excited and um, got into rural properties. <laughs> we bought a, a Milner family property between Cower and, um, and Blaney uh, in 1957. And then my um, uncle, youngest, youngest uncle, he bought a place at Blaney. And then my father followed him to Cower a couple of years later. So in 1959, we moved out to, um, out to Cower. And at that time, you enrol at Newington College, the boarding school at, at age just eight years of old. If I recall correctly, tell me a little bit about your experiences at, at boarding school, particularly given you were so young. Yeah, well, I actually started as a weekly boarder before we, before we moved to, um, to Cowra. And I became a full-time boarder, as you said, in, in uh, fourth class. Um, a wonderful experience. I think one thing it really taught me, probably not in the prep school, but once I got into the senior school was respect. In those days, the senior boys virtually ran the discipline in the, in the college and you learned to respect people. And, and I think it was a great lesson, something we probably don't get as much of today with the younger ones, but you learnt respect and I had a wonderful time at school. And what were you like as a student? I read that you were quite good at sport, but, but, but what were you like at sport and then academia? Uh, I must admit I wasn't a great scholar. I didn't like maths and I didn't like English and I loved sport. You know, I played GPS, represented GPS in the cricket for first and seconds and I played rugby um, in the first at Newington for a few years and I was always coaching junior kids and in my last year it was I think we lost a groundsman and I ended up being an assistant groundsman. I used to get up at six o'clock in the morning and help water and do things. I wasn't a great scholar, but I, I had a wonderful, wonderful time at school. I'd go back again. So you graduated in 1968 from Newington and decided that rather than to pursue further education at a university, uh, that you wanted to align yourself with a career or an early career in the financial markets and you worked for a stockbroker for two years. Tell us a little bit about your interest in, in finance and then why you wanted to get involved in the stock market? Well, the family, the Milner family, we used to go to Canberra every year for a family meeting. In those days, was Coopers and Lybrand, which is now obviously Price Waterhouse Coopers. So we used to go down there in early December every year, and the whole family came, my grandparents, 
and we'd sit in and I became quite interested in, in those days because it was predominantly, you know, the family were predominantly equities. Obviously, we, in those days, we owned sole patents and shares, of course. Um, so that sort of got me going a little bit on, on that front. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed my couple of years working in, in Sydney. It was the mining boom. And it was, it was chaotic. It was all manual process in those days. What they used to call the chalkies, the guys that used to write up on the blackboard. Each broker had a number. And the stock exchange used to shut for lunch. So half the people would go to the pub for, for, for an hour for lunch. But all very, very manual. And you were, people were fixing the market and a lot of insider trading going on. Particularly in the mining boom, the, the, the drillers were ringing up telling they found these magnificent resources because that was in the era of the Tasmanics and Poseidon and it was, it was a fascinating period. And then I guess being at boarding school all those years and in 1968 my father bought a new property so that probably intrigued me a little bit to go back to the bush and, and it was pretty tough in those days. Um, there wasn't a lot of money around, even the city people didn't have much money but um, it was quite um, very poor times in the agriculture. I can remember selling cattle for $25 when you consider now you can get the same sort of two and a half to three thousand dollars for the same animal. So things were pretty tough, but we had a great life. I married a city girl and she came out there with me, so we had a, started a family out there. It was a great time. And just take us back to those two years as a stockbroker. Were there any key lessons that you learnt during that time in terms of how to look at companies, how to evaluate companies? Um, being a junior, I sort of was flat out, in the, as I said in those days, I was down on the floor taking tickets from the, from the actual operator, handing them on to the girl that used to come down and everything was manual. Then they brought those tickets back up into the office and it was all manual journals. But you know, just, as I said, in that mining boom, it was, it was fanatical. It, um, it was interesting and I think that sort of, as I said, with my earlier experience with the family, it sort of encouraged me, hopefully, to be able to go on and do something later on, which I've been able to do. And then in or around about 1970, as you said, you moved back to the family's property in Cowra and you lived there, I think, for the next 12 or 13 years working the land. Tell us a, about that time. You'd, you'd lived in the city, you'd moved back to the, to the country. What were you doing and, and how different was life? Well, as I said, it's, you know, things were pretty tough. Um, we worked hard. Being a sport man, I, I, I played, ended up playing cricket for country, represented country in the cricket and played a lot of football. Had a good time, and but we worked hard, and I think again it learnt, particularly those lean times, it, it, it taught me how to be conscious of money. You know, no one had money like people have got today. You know, we there was nowhere to get, hardly anywhere to go for for dinner or restaurants. If we were lucky, we went into the Chinese restaurant in Cowra. But you know, we had a lot of made a lot of family um, friends. We'd have barbecues and things like that, and I've still got a lot of great mates. Probably some of my closest mates are in the bush now. And what was life like on the land? Take us inside a, an ordinary day. We, I presume you'd get up early and you'd be on the land all day. What, what were you doing day to day? In those days, we mostly had a cattle farm on one place. I've since grown that. I've got some irrigation country and quite, quite large holdings. But in those days, we had one property, my father and myself. We ran, ran cattle. Obviously, we put a bit of fodder in uh, for cattle feed in the winter. Um, we made hay and that was all manual, lifting little bales up top of the hay shed, so I was very fit. And my father worked like a navvy until his 60s. It was hard work. 
Let's now move into your executive career. You joined Washington H. Soul Pattinson as a director in 1984. But before we get into that, tell us about the history of the business, because a lot of people won't know that it was listed on the Stock Exchange in 1903, Australia's second oldest listed company, and it has a history dating back even before then. So tell us about the history of the business, if you could. Well, a chap called Caleb Soul and his son Washington actually opened their first store in 1872. That building actually burnt down in 1886. And that's where we were up until two years ago in that same building. And then Larry Pattinson came out from Australia in 1870, um, had a look around and went back five years later and got his wife. Imagine doing that in this day, leaving your wife alone for five years. <laughs> and she, they came back and he started up pharmacy as well. And um, uh, Caleb Soul died and um, Washington didn't have faith in his family. So he asked uh, Louis, would he take over the business? So they, they did that in 1902. They floated in uh, 1902. I think there was 33,500 shares at one pound each. And Louis was very, very uh, inventive man, very successful man. And he ran that business virtually singly handledly till through the t two wars and the depression. And he was, as I said, a very, very successful man. Uh, a very, um, did a lot of good for the community. He actually donated the very first plane to the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So he was very generous and a successful man. And then his son, Fred, who did medicine, he then got involved in the business in the, in the late 30s. And um, then Fred took over, Louis died in the 40s. And then Fred took over and then Jim, who was chairman before me, my uncle, he came back, he was actually prisoner of war in Changi. And um, he came back after the war. And in those days, um, Souls were purely and simply a pharmaceutical company. And um, things were pretty tight apparently, sort of through to the 60s. And then Jim was very in innovative with the pharmacy. We were the very first um, um, company to discount. We used to have baskets outside our, our shop because there was no Coles or Woolies in those days. It was all, all stripped. And then um, Jim continued on and then I, 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 I joined the board in 1984. Um, I took over as chairman in, in 1999. My son now, Tom, he sits, he's been on the board for about 12 years. So he's actually the, uh, the fifth generation involved in the, in the business. And what about exposure to the business? I presume that you had quite a lot of exposure even when you were living in Cowra to the business. As you said, you joined the board in 1984, but you weren't living in Sydney. You're still living in Cowra and, and travelling down. So were a lot of those early dinner conversations about business and about Washington H. Soul? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, as I said, in that period of time, I didn't touch on a few things that we'll talk about later. Uh, obviously, the, the company had grown dramatically from that period of time. And interestingly, um, the reason I think that Souls really took a, a different direction from pharmacy was Jim was invited to join the board of Australian Oil and Gas um, in the late 50s, early 60s. And there was a chap on the board there called Professor Eric Rudd, who was regarded as one of the top geologists in Australia. And they travelled to New Guinea, Fiji, all over Australia. And they put two and two together that, that mining boom I spoke about earlier was going to happen. 
So Sol's bought up thousands and thousands of shares. For example, in Western Mining, they paid $2.50, I think. Western Mining got to $36 in the um, boom. Pico Walls then, Cleveland Tin, all sorts of mining companies. And that gave Sol's that interest to get going again away from pharmacy to give us that cash to be able to do other things. You mentioned Jim Milner AM there. What what were some of the lessons that you learned from him in, in working so closely with him for, for so long? He was he was a wonderful man. Um, as I said, a POW in Changi. So he was a tough bugger. He was tough. And he didn't suffer fools. Very straight, very direct. But when he said something, you listen. And he was very, very astute. He was probably regarded in his ear as one of the best business people in Sydney. So you joined the board 1984, and if I recall correctly, one of the early deals that you did is for the Adaro mine in Indonesia. How did that come about? Well, we already had an op- operation uh, called New Hope, uh, which today is about a $5.5 billion company. In those days, it was a very small operation in Ipswich. We used to supply coal to the Swanbank Power Station. And a guy called uh, Frank Robertson, he was the one that bought that to Sol Pattinson. And over the next few years, his son became involved, who a guy called Graham Robinson, and he actually um, went and lived in um, Indonesia for a while and married into the higher society in Indonesia. And while he was over there, um, got onto a couple of coal mines. The first one was one called Multi Harapan, and then the Adaro deposit came on board. And watching that develop, the very first time I went there on a helicopter, we couldn't find it in the jungle. And we sold it. It was doing 25 million tonnes of coal. We'd built a coal loader. It was a very, very exciting time you know, to, to, to watch something build like that. And dealing in that, with Indonesia at that time was, was difficult because our contract was after 10 years that we had to have some Indonesian um, ownership and one of the uh, Asian meltdowns at the time, two of our partners went broke because they were all high flyers, of course, using um, money that wasn't theirs. <laughs> so we fortunately found another partner and then um, when things picked up, someone offered us big money and we were more than happy to, to exit. But it was a fascinating experience. I want to ask you more generally about business conditions and the business environment in the late 1980s. Uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs that are now bust but, but were very prominent back then. How did you navigate that environment as a business? Well, it's interesting you ask me that because, um, and we probably will come to this later, but Sol Pattinson had a cross-shareholding with Brickworks, which is still in place today. The Doors family, um, when some of those high flyers were around, John Elliott, as you mentioned, Sir Ron Brearley, Robert Holmes, Accord, etc., etc., he was very concerned that someone was going to take him out. And he bumped into Jim and they become quite matey and they both put two and two together. If they put the two businesses together with the cross shareholders, that they would be a safer bet than someone coming in to take them over at a cheap price. So that, that, was, that, that was very interesting. And I'd only been in chairman for about six months and I got a phone call from Sir Ron Brearley to say that Brickworks was going to take over Sol Pattinson. I sort of nearly fell off the chair. <laughs> and, and luckily we had a guy called David Fairfield on the board who'd been an ex-merchant banker with Climate Benson. 
And um, he said, I think I've just got the ideal man that can help us on this. And it was a guy called Jeff Hill. And he'd done a lot of work for Sir Ron. So anyway, Sir Ron called the meeting. We had it in my office. And um, we sat there for a quarter of an hour because if someone calls the meeting, you're the first one to speak. So I sat there like a scared rabbit <laughs> for about a quarter of an hour waiting for someone to talk. And how did you not get caught up in, up in you know, the, the largesse of that period? Well, we're conservative. Sol Patterson's always been a conservative people and people were paying you know, massively inflated prices for things and, and you've only got to see what happened to most of them. Um, and we'll touch on the, on the TV side of the, that later on, but you know, most of those people were unsuccessful in what they did. As you mentioned earlier, you were appointed chairman of the business in 1999. I believe at the time it had a market capitalisation of some 700 million. Today that's closer to 10, 10.5 billion plus. How did the experiences that you had in that 16 year period as a director help to formulate your view and outlook on where you wanted to position the business? I think it all comes back to people. Um, I was very fortunate and the company's been very fortunate. I think we've had over 40 people here have worked between 30 and 50 years, more so in the older days with pharmacy. We've had three families who have had three generations work and one of those is the Dixon family who were both directors of the company for a period of time. And then of course um, we've had very good um, senior management, Peter Robinson, who was a managing director. And now we've got Todd Barlow who's come in. He's been with us for about 20 years and he's had an excellent grounding uh, through, the, through the business. You know, Lindsay Partridge who runs Brickworks, he's been, uh, and I, and I'm chairman of Brickworks as well, so I talk to Lindsay all the time. He's been um, managing director there for over 20 years. So we've been able to have these wonderful people work for us for long periods of time. And I think that's been our success is choosing people because as we were talking earlier, we haven't got anybody here to go out and fix a coal mine or a brick plant if it's not working. We back other people, and I think that's been our key to, it, key to our success. We've explored your background in the early part of your career. I want to now delve deeper into the, the business and the business operations themselves. It's a unique business, as you know, in that it's got a, well, it seems to have a relatively sector agnostic approach to investments. You're in building materials, you're in telecommunications, you're in mining. Talk to us about the, the size and the scale of the business today. Well, most of those, the three businesses you mentioned, obviously pharmacy, which we exited last year, uh, we sold our 20% to West Farmers last year. It was a bit of a sad day. That was our, our history, but um, it's, that's another story. We won't go there today. But Brickworks, for example, when I took over, we were in New South Wales and, and Queensland. And Elders owned 20% of a company called Bristol, which operated in Victoria, Tassie, South Australia and Western Australia. So that shareholding came on the market. So we bought that. And now we have a national exposure in Brickworks. New Hope, as I mentioned, started off as a very small operation and now it's grown into a five, um, uh, five and a half billion dollar company. And TPG, it started from a $38 million investment in a TV station. It's grown to a, uh, our share of 12.5% um, of a $9 billion company. Let's go through some of those deals in detail. Let's start with, say, TPG Telecom. Tell us about that deal, how it happened, and the precursor in NBN television? Well, again, we were talking about some of the high flyers earlier. 
a guy called Kevin Parry owned NBN at the same time as Christopher Scase and Alan Bond owned Seven and Nine. And he they, they used to have a helicopter and it used to go up from here every day for lunch. And when I took over, the helicopter used to cost $800 an hour. So you can imagine that the, the destruction that he was doing on that business. And in those days, the NBN TV station in Newcastle was the highest rating. It was an affiliate of Channel 9, the highest rating TV station in Australia. So we paid $38 million, it was a distress sale. And we, in that we got a travel agency, a Jay's travel agency in Newcastle, and a wonderful winery in, um, in the Hunter Valley. And I sold both of those to concentrate on the TV station. And then I eventually sold the helicopter back to the pilot because I could see no future of only a helicopter running up and down to Sydney. But mind you, it was, it most, it was used for, they needed it for news, but there was a, there was a lot of waste in it. And, um, and then digital TV came in and um, we arrived up there one day for a board meeting and they said, oh, it's going to cost us $30 million to go into digital TV and we nearly all fell off our chairs. And when, we, when the, they explained to us that when you sit at home, and we still do that now, when you watch TV, very rarely do you lose your picture. So we owned all our transmitters and translators from Gosford to the Gold Coast and out to places like Tamworth and so on. And then um, with that, um, it was the start of the, of the um, telco. Community Co was putting a cable in from Melbourne through um, inland to Brisbane and that cost them $250 million. So we started digital TV with, with it in, in leading into telecommunications. We built a link from Sydney to Brisbane for 30 and then did a deal with Wind Television and went from Brisbane to Cairns and then Melbourne, uh, Sydney to Melbourne with Wind Television. And as the business grew, we went out to Tamworth and places like that. So that's how, um, then we started, a, that was the start of a company called Soul Patents and Telecommunications, which we floated on the market. Uh, we did very well. Um, and then when um, Kerry Packer sold um, Channel 9, old Kerry said to Jim, if you ever want to sell NBN, give me a yell. So I rang up James and they took that off our hands for 250 million. We sold SPT Telecommunications into TPG. And as I said, from the start of a $38 million investment, we've now got this holding in um, TPG, plus we've, you know, we made money along the way. He's now left the business, but of course, one of the fundamental players was David Teo as part of the TPG business. Talk to us about your partnership and your relationship with him. David's, David's uh, probably one of the most astute um, telco people in Australia. Virtually started with nothing. Very, very quiet, unassuming. But if you want to know anything about tele telecommunications, he's one. And we've had a very good, very good relationship with him. A chap called Michael Simmons, who was running our SP Telecommunications in those days, spent a lot of time with David doing the DD before we did the, um, the joint ventures and I ended up having a few, um, a few dinners with David to get to know him and you know, we've had a good working relationship and it certainly paid dividends. And the merger with Vodafone in 2018, how did that come about and how successful has that been? We were putting in our own network at TPG using Huawei, which is a Chinese equipment. And then the government, of course, we'd spent over $100 million and the government with the Chinese 
um, trouble that they're having with, with China, told us to stop importing them. We'd spent $100 million. For some reason, I don't know why the government didn't say to us, you go and buy all the equipment you need, bring it in, develop your network. So we realised that without a network, we weren't going to go anywhere. And Vodafone, Vodafone were always looking for, to do something. And then, of course, we ran into the ACCC, who were, knocked us back at the first time. And we've just been knocked back again with the ACCC. I want to ask you about the Australian corporate landscape, say over the past two decades in which you've been chairman of Washington Hate Soul Pattinson. There's been strong economic growth, there's been the creation of new industries, the advancement of, of new technologies. What have been your observations from a domestic perspective as to how the landscape or how the environment has changed? Well, we all know we've seen massive change, you know, the technology and I've, I've witnessed that through, um, through TPG and, and now TPG Vodafone. You know, it's just, you know, everyone's become so dependent on pads, phones, computers. And um, in, in that time, we've, we've, um, one of the things I learnt was with the, the Brickworks takeover. When it was all over, I said to David, I said, maybe we should start up our own investment bank, which we did. And we got Jeff Hill to come on board. And then um, in that period of time, Todd, Todd, who's now our managing director, I mentioned him a while ago, he came on board and we've still got a young bloke here, Brent Smith, who's been with us for that period of time as well. So that's given us the ability to, to really go in and do our um, due diligence on various businesses that we, that we look at. And these are all younger guys who are, who are switched on with technology and know what's going on. I think that's probably been the one, of, one of the best things that's happened to us um, as far as technology and moving ahead with the times is when we started up Pit Capital Partners and that obviously grown quite dramatically. And take us inside that business. It works out of the office here. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of Solpats, but does it actually work for external companies as well? Does it work with uh, external suppliers to look at deals or is that solely an in-house investment bank? When we started off, we were doing a bit of outside work. But uh, as we'll talk about later, um, we've expanded our business dramatically, particularly in Todd's era. So we're in all sorts of different businesses now, which we'll obviously touch on later. But, um, I think that's been a wonderful, wonderful idea that having our own investment bank, purely and simply now working on things for ourselves. And obviously with our large investments, they work on our investments in TPG and Brickworks as well. Regarding new acquisitions, you previously said, my focus is simple. I ask one question, will the investments underpin a higher dividend to my shareholders in the future? What, what are the fundamentals that you and the team look at prior to deploying capital into a new business? Back again, people. And as you mentioned, it has to be cash generated. We're an investment company. So we need to pay our, dividend, our shareholders dividends which we're the only company in Australia that has never stopped paying a dividend. Through the Depression years, the war years, the GFC, we've always been able to at least maintain, and recently we've continued to put our dividend up. So we have to have good cash-generating businesses, and some of them go through cycles, but a business like New Hope, when things are good like they are at the moment, they generate a huge amount of free cash. I think New Hope's paid over the years well over $1.2 billion just in special dividends. Incredible. 
And the business has controlling stakes or major stakes in some of its portfolio companies and then minority stakes in others. Take us through the, the benefits of, of that approach. Where and how do you decide whether you want a controlling stake or a majority stake in one business versus a minority in another? Well, a lot of it came about, obviously, New Hope um, came about, we had 70% at one stage. And when we were developing a Darrow, the banks wouldn't lend any money because coal was on the nose. It was, I think we were getting $18 a tonne in those days. So we funded a lot of the development in Adaro. And Brickworks, again, with their large shareholding there, we've always had part of the deal they did, was we had two directors on the board. And TPG, we've always had a director on the board. Um, I was always on the API board. And we've got some of the young chaps now um, educating them, and they now sit on some of our subsidiary boards, and we'll talk about that later in our private equity. They now sit on some of those boards as well. But it gives us good inside information into the, into the companies, and it gives us a good feel. And when you own 15, 20, 25% of the company, you, you, you want to know what's going on. For over 120 years, the business has continually produced a dividend for shareholders, wearing all manner of economic and political and geopolitical storms. How, how has that been possible? Well, again, I think we've had very good people running businesses that have generated cash for us. And as I just mentioned, you know, the cash to me is the most important part of a business. You know, without cash, and that this company, up until two years ago when interest rates virtually dropped to zero, we've never, we never had debt, which is a staggering, a staggering amount. And we've always had cash, so if something happened, we could move quickly. We used to have an, an equity portfolio of about $500 million on our own, and that's obviously grown since we did the deal with Milton. But um, we've always had cash, and we can move quickly and make a, make a decision without worrying the, whether the bank's going to lend us the money or not. One of the unique factors, I think, about this business, and, and clearly the market agrees, is that you've got this long-term, almost family-like vision to creating value even though it's a listed company and you'd think it would have more of a short-term emphasis on results. How, how have you been able to do that? You're a listed company, but you've got such a long-term vision. Well, again, I, I, I keep going back to these three major investments that's given us the, the base of where we are now. If you build a, a brick plant, we actually Brickworks is actually building a brand new one at the moment, it's going to last 40 years. So you have to think long-term. A coal mine, it's not going to run for two years. It's going to run for 10 or 15, 20 years. And the same as telecommunications, pharmacy, are all long-term businesses. So we've never here thought short-term. You've got to focus on peaks and troughs, and you've got to be able to ride those troughs out as well as take advantage of the, of the, of the peaks. Company valuations, we've seen fluctuations in them even as recently as the last 18 to 24 months, but particularly over the last 20 or 30 years. When you're assessing the value of a company, what do you look at? Again, you've got to have good people in it. Again, it's got to generate cash. And it's got to be a business. And I think this is one of the things that we often talk about at the moment in the boardroom. A business that you're looking at now, is it going to be around in 10 or 15 years? You invest hundreds of millions of dollars or more into a business, is it going to be a business? And we mentioned earlier the change in technology. Is that, is that business going to be around? And I quite often say, not, to, not only to the, the guys in here, but the guys on the board, if we go down this track, would you put your own money into that business? 
And it's amazing sometimes that people come back and say, possibly not. So you, 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 like, it's very easy to spend other people's money, but you've got to be conscious of your own money. And we're, and we're looking after shareholders' money. It's not my money or Todd's money. It's shareholders' money. So you've got to be ultra careful. Solpats is renowned for its lean approach uh, and its lean business model. So as you said, little to no debt, low overheads. You're not interested in this sort of corporate largesse. Uh, is that something that has always been instilled in the company over you know, 100 or so years and that you've been able to continue on, or is that something that you've implemented? No, it's something that's been there. Um, for example, when the uh, last uh, coal mining boom was on about 10 or 12 years ago, we had a billion dollars in cash because we sold an asset at that same time to, um, to BHP. And we had everybody knocking on the door here trying to, trying to get me to spend that billion dollars. But we waited, we waited, we waited and we bought a, a mine from uh, Rio and West Farmers, which is the second lowest cost producer in Australia. You have to make money in the lean times as well as the, as the good times. So we've always been very cost conscious of that. Um, we've never gone out and paid silly prices at the top of a boom. We've waited because we've been in a position to wait. And I think that's one of the reasons why we, we haven't blown ourselves up. We haven't done anything silly. I think a good example of that, and, and I may have got the story a little bit muddled here, but, but you can correct it, was when you were looking to buy a stake in the Australian pharmaceutical industries and you did a tour of the car park and what you found surprised you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> well, that was when, when Peter and I were first uh, asked Ron Rowland and uh, John Matthews, who the CEO and chairman. Well, for years, um, Fallings and um, Sigma and API had always wanted to get hold of our pharmacy business. We were far, by far the biggest operator in New South Wales. We had over 400 agents. Um, we had our own manufacturing, uh, our own warehouse, and we'd always been the innovative pharmaceutical company in Australia. And we went out there the first time <laughs> And Peter said, oh, my God, look at all the bloody cars in the car park here. But, you know, when you sit down and look at it, in those days, you know, the factory workers, everybody had to drive to work because it was a bit, where the old factory was, was a bit isolated. <laughs> and your approach to counter-cyclical investment, uh, you like picking up distressed assets as, as hard as that can be. Tell us about how that has been successful for the business and, and any examples where you've been able to pick up distressed. Well, I think I just touched on that with, when back with New Hope with Bengala. We're sitting on a nice little chest at the moment. As we spoke earlier before we started this interview, I, you know, a lot of the so-called experts are talking there may be some sort of a slowdown. So, so we're, in a, we're in a good position where, as I mentioned before, we're always able to move quickly because we haven't got debt and we've got cash. One of the growth areas for the business is the private equity portfolio valued, I think, between seven and eight hundred million today. Where's the long-term focus for that? How big do you think that division of the business could be? Obviously, that's grown dramatically. Todd and his younger team here—they're very, very proactive in growing, growing the business. We're into—we spent quite a bit of money into agriculture, um, into citrus, macadamians, uh, kiwi fruit, and we're diverse. We've got some. Uh, investments in Western Australia, some in the Riverina and some in Queensland. So we've spread our risk. We've got a lot of water. Um, we've just got into swim schools. When you think about it, everybody in Australia needs to learn to swim. Um, and it's a very fragmented business. 
mostly owned by mums and dads, so we're putting a few of these um, businesses together. So I think we'll end up in a few years with quite a, a decent scale there. We used to own 45% of a company called Amp Control. Um, we've just taken that over in the last few years and that's um, into this new energy as well as making underground coal mining equipment. So, you know, the, the guys here are very busy um, and we are now doing quite a lot of um, structured debt. Probably up until about two years ago, if someone had a deal, they'd come to us and we'd be eight or ten in the list. Now, we're probably one or two in the list. So we're seeing a lot of the good deals that are coming through. And um, we're seeing a lot of this structured debt financing where, where people are coming in and you know, we're getting 10, 12, 14% for our money. I want to ask you about the issue of energy transition through New Hope Group. You've got exposure obviously to traditional coal mines, but also to renewable projects as well. What's your reading on, on the market and where do you see this issue heading in, in the long term? I think it's a mess. Unfortunately, the whole world has been sucked into this closing down your base power stations. Before we have enough batteries, before we have enough wind, before we have enough solar, if, you, if hydrogen's going to work, if nuclear, we, we should have nuclear. But we should have had, everyone should have had those all lined up before then you turn off your base, your base power. Through, as you mentioned, through New Hope, I've I'm, I'm got a lot of facts and figures on this. For example, there's about a billion tonnes of thermal export coal at the moment shipping around the world each year. And that's not going to drop, it's going to only drop to about 800 million tonnes in 2030. And by 2050, it's still going to be 400 million tonnes. BP claimed that the world's still going to be 50% reliant on fossil fuels in 2050. So the world's building uh, new coal-fired power stations. We're the only country in the world that's not building a new coal-fired power station. Europe, China's building thousands of them. So, you know, I think we're, we're going to be in for some a very rocky road here. We're going to be paying more for energy than we should be. We've got all this gas that people won't let develop. But you've got to have base power. You can't make a wind turbine without, power, without base power or solar farm. You just can't. You can't get the heat or the energy. Before we move on, I want to ask you about the Washington State Soul patents and business in general in terms of what are the biggest opportunities that you see on the horizon and on the opposite side, what are the biggest challenges that you see for, for the business? I think opportunities. We, as I think I've tried to explain to your listeners during this interview, we're not afraid to go into any business provided it's got good people and it generates cash. And that's why we've you know, been in all these sorts of different businesses. So we're open to where we go. Uh, as I said before, we're hoping there's going to be a bit, of a, a bit of a slowdown. There's some businesses maybe we wouldn't go into, but you know, again, it's hard to, hard to put a figure on that because again, as I mentioned, like, where are we in 10 or 15 years? And there's, you know, there's some businesses that you've got to ask, will they be still be here in, in 10 or 15 years? So I want to ask you for the for the retail investor out there that, that's listening, what makes Solpats such a unique company and what are the benefits to investing in it, do you think? 
Well, we're a company that no other company has what we have. We give a diverse range of investments, and you cannot get that through any other company that's listed on the stock exchange. You know, we've, we've got coal mining, we've got brick making, and now we're going into different sorts of fields where other people don't go. So it gives us a flavour that I don't think any other company that's listed in the market can do what we can do. And touch wood, we've been able to do that, do that successfully, and I hope we can continue to do it. And I want to ask you about the succession plan. So your son, Tom's fifth generation, as you said, uh, going to lead the business. But who are the other leaders, the next generation of leaders that are coming up underneath you and, and learning from you? Well, obviously, um, that'll be for others to decide whether Tom takes over from me. But we've got good opportunities in here. We've, if something happened to Todd tomorrow, there's, there's people in here that could, could step in and take over. Loosely speaking, do you see opportunities in any other markets in Europe or the UK or Asia at all for, for any of those groups? Well, we're in Asia already with Apex Pharmacy and we're in there with um, Singaporean partners. Interestingly, um, Kurt, who is the MD at the moment, his father came out here in 1950 and did a cadetship with Sol Pattinson and went back and was very successful and came out and asked Jim what he wanted to do a joint venture. So that's how, how we got involved there. The reason we went to America was Brickworks that Lindsay actually worked over there with CSR. So he knew how uh, the American operations worked. Again, it's a very fragmented business. Um, it's not like here where you've got two or three players, They're mostly old family um, businesses and um, there hasn't been a lot of money spent over there on, on the factories, etc. But if you go to New York, if anyone can remember New York, and next time someone goes to New York, it's nearly all brick, and we supply that market. It's, and America is just—it's a massive market. What are the the key topics that you're discussing at a board level at the moment? Um, well, obviously we have um, opportunities that are brought to us, and obviously we go we go through our current investments. But um, the boys, the PCP boys, have got things quite often that they recommend for us to, to future investing. I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few more interesting themes about yourself and, and what you've seen in your career. You've had enormous exposure to management teams across industries, across sectors. What are the key traits, do you think, of successful leaders or managers of businesses? Honesty. And when someone looks you in the eye, you know you've got a good person. I think, that, as I mentioned before, I think that's been our biggest trait is to be able to pick good people, not only here, but in, in the other businesses that we invest in. And you've only got to see what read and hear what happens in, to some of these businesses from some of these people. That we haven't always made the right decision. We have made a few bad decisions, but fortunately, we've made a lot more good ones, thanks to good people, than we've, we've made bad ones. And then on a personal level, what have been your keys to success, do you think? Oh, I guess I've been married for 48 years. No, no. And I've got a lovely wife and three wonderful children and family and eight grandchildren. I think, well, that, that's stability. And I've got a very patient wife because I spend a lot of time travelling and doing all sorts of things that when she's not about. And um, no, I've been very blessed. And again, this business would not be where it is without people. Mistakes that businesses make, what, what have you seen, whether they're companies that you've considered deploying capital into but then you've pulled back at the last minute, are there any mistakes that you've seen or, or areas that you just don't want to invest in because you've seen certain things? Yeah, we, we've, we've made some 
And probably our biggest mistake, we went into a company called Balfour's in South Australia, which makes um, cakes and biscuits, and we struggle to compete with Coles and Woolies. Yeah, there's, and I, I, I'm not prepared to talk at the moment because some of these businesses we've sort of been looking at, and, but there are some businesses that are, in this day and age, are difficult, getting labour, you know, the whole world uh, struggling with, with labour. Our, um, we have an investment in Malaysia, Apex, which is a pharmaceutical operation. Even in places like Malaysia, they're not getting the Nepalese and the um, Indonesians and Filipinos coming into Malaysia to help them with their, their, uh, their workforce. So I think this is a problem we all face. So that I think you've got to be careful of going into businesses that you know are going to survive in, in years to come. In terms of deal making, how do you how do you put deals together and, and ensure that they're sealed in the end? You've done so many deals over your career. What, are there any key fundamentals that are required to, to put deals together? Due diligence. You must do your due diligence. And I think that's, again, in our recent period of time, has been our great strength with these wonderful young blokes we've got out the back who do the DD on these various deals. And we do a lot. We do a lot of DD. It costs us money, but you've got to get it right. As I said, we've made, we made a very bad mistake at Balfour's. We probably shouldn't have gone in there. And doing DD, and only in the last 12 or 18 months, we spent a lot of money on a couple of deals. We were very close to doing, and then we, you know, we didn't go ahead because we didn't think it was the right investment for us. But due diligence, due diligence, due diligence. Australia's place in the world today, where do you see the future of Australia? Do you see our economic partnership with China but our security partnership with the US enduring over the long term? I think that's a difficult one to answer at the moment. We've nearly priced ourselves out of existence. The regulation, the cost of doing business, um, and that's why there's very few manufacturing businesses left in Australia. And I know just recently, through Brickworks, the extra money that has to be spent on manufacturing, you know, putting scrubbers on plants and um, watering systems and uh, it just adds up into millions and millions of dollars of extra regulatory requirements and then we go all this um, governance and ESG and risk and which all costs a lot of money to run you know we all we all need to go there but I think we've gone from having a 20 page annual report which we used to have to somewhere like a Commonwealth Bank having a 330 page annual report where and then we have, on the other side of the coin, we have our money, our super money, going 12% of that going into, into somewhere that people are looking after. You as an individual, can you understand an annual report now? I think a lot of that should be put on a website so people can see it on the website, but have a simple annual report so people can see how much money the company makes, who are the major shareholders, read the... Um, managing director and chairman's report, but keep it simple, like it used to be. Is there a risk that a lot of businesses won't list on the stock market in the future because oh. there's so much regulation? Yeah, there's no doubt about that, yeah. yeah. And do you see even companies delisting from, from the stock market and going back into this private you know, privatisation yeah. as a result? Yeah, yeah. well, and this is one of the biggest problems too. The, our annual general meeting system has now become nearly a forum for agitation. Very rarely do I ever get thanked from a shareholder for what we've done as a company. It's more, you know, the nicky-picky things that, you know, people's trying to grandiose on the, on the stage, having a go at you. When, like, as I said, this company's been the most successful company, one of the most successful companies in Australia. There's people still think there's something wrong with it. Like, we're not perfect, but 
You know, you don't stand up at an AGM and Nick pick you. <laughs> what about short selling? Does that have a place in the market? <laughs> well, it, it does for the big investment banks who make a lot of money out of it. But again, I'm going back to you and I with our super money. I don't think that should be lent to a short seller because it's driving the price of the shares down. But there's a place for it. Finally, proudest achievements. And is there anything that you haven't achieved but still on the horizon that you want to? Obviously, keeping being fourth generation is not easy. You know, there's the old saying, the first two make it and the third blow it up. I'm fourth and Tom's fifth. We've grown this company, as you said, quite dramatically. Um, not all because of myself, but because of the good people we've had. But when I sit back and look at something like what we've done with Adaro, you know, trying to find a a stretch of coal in a jungle to making that into a 25 million tonne operation. I think it's doing 50 million tonnes at the moment, building our own uh, port and those sorts of things. Watching things being built. You know, we're building a brand new brick factory at the moment. Just watching things being, being built, you know, so you get your hands on something and again, it wouldn't be done without people. Robert Milner, Chairman of Washington HSL Patents and what a privilege it is to be able to speak to you this morning. Thanks so much for your time and for your insights. Thank you.